Media Focus with Paul Blanchard. Welcome again to Media Masters, a series of extended one-to-one interviews with people at the very top of their game. Today we have a real treat in store for you. I'm joined by Robert Lee. Robert is a genuine industry legend. 82 years old, he has quite rightly been called the father of PR. As international chairman, he grew Burson Marstella to become the largest PR agency in the world. And his trophy cabinet has collapsed under the weight of all his awards and accolades. Just a few in 2000, the CIPR gave him the first ever Alan Campbell Award for outstanding contributions to public relations. In 2011, he received US Journalism's highest award, the Missouri Honor Medal for Distinguished Service to Journalism. Previous recipients include Winston Churchill, no less. In 2013, the American Biographical Institute named him one of the greatest minds of the 21st century. And here in the UK, Debrett's have recognised him as one of the most influential people in the country. Now, I turn out to listen to that guy. <laughs> well, I think we should start at the beginning. How on earth did you get into the PR business? Well, I got into the PR business because I had a degree in journalism and I was in the army. They made me a lecturer. After that, I went to work for a small publicity outfit. And then I went to be at Burson Marstella as the first trainee they ever had. It was how, a, how did you get that job then? What happened was I went to a book of PR firms and I wrote to a pile of them and a pile of companies like IBM and so on. And uh, they answered and they wanted someone uh, there. But they didn't want to hire me because they thought that I had too much experience and they wanted somebody to open the uh, president's mail, Harold Burson's mail. They wanted a trainee. So the interview was along the line of, oh, you're much too good. No, I'm not. Uh, yes, <laughs> you're very, very good. No, I'm not really that good. And that went on. And so I finally convinced him I wasn't that good. And Harold Burson, who wasn't there, met me the next day. I met with him. And he spent a half hour and he said, Bob, you want to go in PR? You can start on Monday. And that was it. And that was 55 years ago. Why did you choose PR? Because I imagine as a young man you could have chosen any industry. No, the funny thing is when I went to journalism school, I wanted to be a sports writer. Then I wanted to be in advertising. But when I saw the lectures on PR and what it was doing, I thought this was something new that had a great future. So I switched my degree to public relations. And how long were you at Burson Marstella for? Oh, well, I'm still in their offices now. I still advise yes, them, are. so it's 55 <laughs> years wow. I've been involved with them. 40 years I was physically, you know, and I was the international chairman. And the last 15, I'm in their offices and I act as an advisor among doing other work. Wow, I mean, 40 years, that must be an incredible journey. It was. What was so great about it is was because we started as a very tiny company, but not. And I got a break that no one else will have because uh, nowadays you have a, uh, every big PR firm, whether you're Edelman or Helen Knowlton or anybody else, there's a head of Europe, there's a head of Asia, there's a head of South America. Because it was just starting, I was head of all of them, and that will never happen again. So I could open Asia, I could open Australia, I could open uh, South America, and nobody will have that job ever again. Was it quite a cultural challenge, that, though? Because I imagine if, you know, like you've just said, if you expand a PR agency internationally now, your chances are you're going to buy something that exists there already, and they're already know, going to know the culture and so on. You were going to far-flung corners of the world, and you, you had the cultural I had one well. break because I had a master's degree in history where I'm, I had studied the history of nearly all these countries that I had gone to, and in some places I knew, like in France, the France never liked the British and didn't like the Americans at all because English had taken over the language from French, and they were resented it. Still do now, but I knew more about their history than they did. Like, I was, I bought a very dinner. Oh, yes, they fired 2,608 bullets there or something. And because they felt I knew their history, 
I had no problems in France. So I never, it's the only office I ever had that I never had an English or an American manager. What prompted you to, to kind of get into this role expanding internationally? Did you kind of fall into it as the company expanded or is it something you deliberately sort of set out to do? Well, Harold Burson said we should go overseas. And uh, in fact, I was made international vice presidents before we had an international because companies, <laughs> were, PR, really. companies were really all interested in that. And then we started overseas and we were mainly in Europe. But we felt the clients, we, see, we're in a client business and the clients were going more and more overseas in those days. We followed them, some we led them. And then I set up offices all over the world. And so that was some of the most exciting things that ever happened to me. In terms of the mechanics of PR back then, you know, what was it actually like? Because nowadays you just email journalists and kind of buy media discs and spam them. I mean, I imagine, to say the obvious, it's a completely well, in, different in, going on. In those days, it was surprisingly enough, it was primary publicity. I mean, it's much more sophisticated now. You didn't have social networking or anything like that. It was basically writing articles. And the people going into it were journalists. And then that has, has changed. But each of the countries that I, it was very, very different. You have to understand, I think one of the reasons we were successful is we never said, uh, we're an American company in Hong Kong. We're a Hong Kong company that happens to be owned by the Americans. Like I'd say, probably the most exciting things for me, uh, in Russia and Moscow, during the Cold War, I gave a speech there and then they hired us and opened the first PR firm in Russia. I signed in the Great Hall of the People in China and put the Chinese into public relations, the government, for the first time. Opened the first big uh, PR uh, company in the Middle East. So that in each of these incredible. places were different. <laughs> they were very different. And you had to learn that they were different. And that's, that's what was so much fun. I really, really enjoyed everything I was doing. What was your primary motivation then in expanding internationally? Those marketplaces needed it. The difference was they didn't have it. So you were plugging a gap. So what happens is there were some, you know, small firms. But as I said, like in, in Russia, there was no uh, public relations didn't exist. And in the Middle East, you know, there was not uh, as it is known today. So we were bringing something that was new that we felt had great growth potential. That was the main reason. And every, every area we went into, we grew at that time because we were the... Uh, the starters. Now, there are PR firms that are bigger than Burson today, but in those days we were becoming quite dominant internationally. What was your lifestyle? Were you always traveling? Were you always on planes? Or did you tend to be based in London? And how did uh, it work? Well, I first was based in Brussels and then I moved uh, to London, which I really enjoyed, on a two year assignment. Don't trust American companies. <laughs> it's been a long two yeah, year assignment. The longest two years. And <laughs> I was mainly traveling, but I had a very good deal. Uh, I could take my wife with me anywhere I went, and they allowed it. Today, believe it or not, it's taxable uh, if you bring your wife. And it's not a, for a business meeting. You just want to go somewhere you want to show her. So uh, she traveled all over the world with me, which was a great benefit because she absolutely adored it. What was the favorite kind of area of the world that you expanded to? I mean, clearly there's so many to choose from, given that you I'll, did the whole thing. I'll tell you, there was no favorite because it's according to when you were there. I mean, you can go to a place even in tourism and the weather is lousy, you have a terrible time. You come back six months later, it's beautiful, you have a great time. I like nearly every place. Different kinds of excitement. The Middle East was very, very different. Uh, and we worked for the uh, number two man in the Saudi country, whose father was the head of Saudi Arabia, working on the King Faisal Foundation, talking about how charities in the Middle East was different than most of the other clients uh, we had. So it varied according to who the client was, what the needs were, and 
I, f- I found all of it exciting. I even I lived in uh, Hong Kong for a couple of years, and I, I found that Hong very Kong. exciting. It's an amazing, amazing area. Funny. And the funny thing is, Hong Kong was ever, for example, Hong Kong, they have this thing, feng shui, which means the wind. Where you put your office has to be by a window that has the best wind coming in. So even though I was the most senior man, had a bigger office, the man in charge of profits had the office where the wind was coming. <laughs> Right. And when we opened it, we had to have a pig outside the door that everyone had to have a piece of that pig, everybody in the company, so we'd be successful. A pig? Forgive a pig, me. yeah. A, a dead... What, a, oh, a, he was dead, yeah. A, we didn't eat live pig, pigs. Right? No, it was a, and for example, I said, one of my greatest accomplishments happened to be in Malaysia. I drove an evil spirit out of the ladies' room. Uh, the mothers were not allowing their daughters to come to work because there was an evil spirit. Incredible. So... I had to speak. I spoke to a religious man, and I said, oh, 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 and it's gone. We became the biggest PR firm in Malaysia, and that spirit hasn't been back in 50 years. So uh, Incredible. that was one of my exciting jobs. How do you expand a PR firm internationally? Is it a bit like McDonald's where you kind of take a toolkit of methodologies, you know, you have a way of doing things, and you localize it? Or did you have to kind of start from scratch it, it, in every territory? No, it's, it's, it's different. You need different needs in different places. Uh, it, it depends on what is needed within that marketplace. Now, they might have needed more in South America when I started there than they needed in Australia. I mean, so it's what is necessary. What are people looking for? What what are the companies really wanting the PR firm to provide? And uh, it's changed dramatically now. Clients are much more difficult today than they ever were. They're much tougher. They'll pay bigger budgets, but very demanding. They want to see results, and they've got to prove it. And as I said, the social networking you better have somebody who really understands digital when you make a pitch for a new PR account. But it's changed dramatically. And as I said, and, you know, uh, my members were just published, The Art of Perception. Public relations today is really managing perceptions. And that is what the key to the whole future. And it's not only for PR people. You can be a doctor. In fact, there's been studies, like in my book, I mentioned that doctors are, are considered to be incredibly bad at dealing with their patients. Mm. And they once did a study where doctors taped oncologists speaking to their own patients, and they had about 90 of them, and these were all dying patients. And afterwards, the doctor said 70% would have been better off never having spoken to their doctor. Well, so they went to the doctor and they were spoken to so poorly that they, it actually they would have been <laughs> better worse. off. They would have been better off not speaking to them. And that's Incredible. doctors saying, not PR people. Wow. So it's, it's really how, how you deal. And perception, like I told you can change, like perceptions. There's four kinds of perceptions. One, it doesn't exist, like you're opening a new restaurant in an area that's never had one. It doesn't exist. Or there's a perception, and it's positive, but you want to make it more positive, like when the churches are collecting money for certain charities. They're positive, but they want... Or it's negative, and you've got to try and change it to a certain degree. Or it's so negative, like Israel in the Middle East with the Arabs, it can't change completely. You try and modify it. But it can change. I'll give you one story. Which, uh, that cha- You can change perception with one sentence. When I gave a speech in Moscow, I had talked in Lithuania, Romania, uh, Poland, Czechoslovakia, and this was during the Cold War and Russia, about advertising and PR. The Russians had in their encyclopedia along the lines, advertising is something the West used to get people to buy things they don't need and so on. So I gave this speech, and at the end, I said I'd answer questions. And one professor said, Mr. Leaf, how do you justify social good of advertising? That's and quite I mean, a convincing accent, actually. And I said, on the spot, I said, you, Egypt was before Sadat, and the Egyptians were under the Russians. So I said, 
you want to sell harvesters to the Egyptians. The Americans want to sell harvesters. Now, if the Americans sell and the money goes to capitalists, they use it to take their girlfriends out around the world, they buy second homes for themselves. If you do it, you build roads, you build hospitals, and you give it to the poor. And he said, Mr. Leaf, I can accept that. And the Russian state advertising agency, Vinestro Reclama, hired us based on the answer to one question changing their whole perception. And that's why when I talk about perceptions, and that's why I lecture mainly in, in the universities, is it is perception today that counts. But you were talking, we were talking off air before the podcast tape recording started going about the Catholic Church, for example, and how the change of Pope has completely uh, revolutionized how it's viewed. Oh, that's a perfect example because the Catholic Church, when we had clients in the early days, I would say to the client, argue with the government, but don't argue with the church in Ireland. Argue with the government and that's it. Later, every, every Catholic mother wanted four children. You know, one to be a priest, one to be a doctor, and two to have four kids apiece, so she'd have enough grandchildren. But all of a sudden, with the problems with the pederasts, but not only that, the article about nuns and the way the nuns had raised, it got so bad that last year they had to go to Africa to get priests for Ireland. And so the whole perception, all because of the present pope, has changed dramatically, mm. both in Ireland and in Boston, which they had a lot of problems with pederasts and they'd become anti-Catholic. This pope has changed the concept. So for the first time in Ireland, people are returning to the church and other people who weren't even Catholic are joining. And that's what the perception of one man has done to change the whole feeling about Catholicism around the world. So it's almost chicken and the egg. Is it it that he is who he is and that that's changing perception or that he's set out to do it? Do you think that people just looked at the previous pope, Pope Benedict, and just thought, we don't like this guy for whatever reason, and that just kind of, uh, it's the fruits of the poisonous tree, as it were? Well, no, the thing is, it is, it is you are what you are. And his thinking and the things that he wants to do are what the Catholics feel they really need. Mm. It's not as much a dislike of the last one as this man is, is, is changing. And the politicians, I mean, it's amazing. Obama ran the first time, 2010. He gets all the young vote. So what does he do? He only spends it on Medicare, doesn't talk a word about jobs. And if you're 21 and out of work, you don't care about Medicare. 2012, the Republicans took over Congress. He didn't understand the perception of their own people that had elected him. Here they have all the politicians. Cameron a lot of times says things that alienate his own people. Sentences that if he had thought more what the perception of the answer would be. Do you think he's doing it deliberately? No, no, never. No, no. You don't think he's trying to distance himself from the party? No, not at all. Not at all. You don't say a thing that's going to alienate, that you don't want to alienate. If you want to alienate, then you're saying it to alienate. But when you say a thing and you found out, boy, I didn't expect that the people would be so upset about that. And yeah, I mean, Miliband's found the, uh, the, sa- the same problems. How can, I mean, how can it be that the, the people that are supposedly at the top of their game, you know, Barack Obama, David Cameron, how can they be making these kind of schoolboy PR communications errors? No, they're top of the game. And I'm not saying they didn't do good things. Like Cameron's done some excellent things and all of a sudden his popularity, I think, is growing a little. It's just they don't think about perception. And that's what I'm saying. And that's what, you know, uh, my, my book is about, my lectures are about, is because is what is going to be the perception of what you say, what you do. And it's even when your marriages, the perception of how your wife is going to react to something. So you know her well enough that there's certain things you won't say. How you raise your children, a lot depends on the perception of what they're like, what you want them to be like, how you think they're going to become the way you want them to be like. So do you think society's become much more PR-focused? Oh, yeah. 
There's no question it is as far as PR is concerned. PR is growing. Journalism, unfortunately, is having major problems. Uh, the newspapers are cutting back. And There's it's no def- money in it, is there? There's no money. And it, but that's helping the PR business because, for example, if I uh, years ago wanted to uh, go to the Telegraph and I said I had get greatest uh, – I know this guy, Paul, who's the worst guy in the world, and I'll tell you all about him. They'd say, we will have our research assistant look up Paul and mm. we'll call you. Due Nowadays, diligence. there's no research assistant. Yeah. They'd say, Paul's that bad? Come on in and tell us about him. Mm. So the ability to place stories and the need. Uh, but surprisingly enough, the writing, a lot of the writing is much weaker. Because they used to be all journalists. And nowadays, I mean, a lot of editors show me releases they've received. You wouldn't believe. Spelling is wrong. The lead's not in the front. It's in the 11th paragraph. So it, it, it can vary dramatically. And do you think that's because, you know, I know quite a few people in PR that were ex-journalists, but there's a lot of people now that go straight into PR that they've never dealt with exactly. know, any kind of media. Yeah, before. so they haven't done much writing. And they're very good with them because, uh, look, healthcare is growing. One of the fastest parts of, of public relations is healthcare. So you're getting people who might have looked into medicine as a career that have gone, in, that have gone into it. And it's growing very, very fast. Do you think PR's doing so incredibly well because journalism isn't? No, I think it's doing well because it's needed more. It's growing a little, as I said, because maybe the decline of journalism. I lecture the universities. I was stunned to find out how many of the students majoring in PR had switched from majoring in journalism because they don't think the future there is anything like it is in PR. But as I say, with the future, you've got to, you've got to be much more careful. Like when you're pitching for business, like you're pitching healthcare, they have like at Burson, the chairman came out with a thing on it based on evidence-based PR. And you go, and you go to, and you, maybe you talk to thirty doctors before you even go to see the potential client, mm. and then you come in and you say, "Look, the reason that that you're buying your drug at the competition is this, and we think you can do this, and this is the evidence that we're going." And client buys it and they'll pay. But at the end of six months to a year, you you better have done what you have promised with your evidence-based PR. Mm. So the clients are, are much much tougher. They are much more sophisticated response. And that's a lot of it is because of social media and things like that. But do you think there's a kind of obsession these days with kind of metrics that, you know, in, in the old days, you, you were never obsessed with how many thousands of Twitter followers you could get and readership and punch and all this kind of thing. I wonder whether it's that slightly detracts, whether I would rather have 10 Twitter followers that are the right type of that's people. Heaven. It's not metrics and volume. You, what you just mm. said is the exact truth of the business. Mm. You can go to a client and say, look, I got your 20 articles in the in the newspaper. And one of them says you're the worst firm that ever lived, you know. <laughs> I don't think he's going to increase your budget. Yeah. So the difference is what was on Facebook? Why was it good? Even one article. What has it accomplished according to what you see as your needs? And that is the key, knowing what your needs. And also having a greater idea of the perceptions of the people you're trying to reach. What are their perceptions? Maybe they really like you, certain ones of them. You don't have to spend as much time. Other potential customers might not like you as much. One of the biggest changes, believe it or not, is your own staff. I gave a speech about, oh, maybe five, six years ago and said the one thing that is dead in this world is company loyalty. doesn't exist. Mm. When I started, if you went to work for IBM or AT&T, they kept you till the end. If you were bad, they put you in a corner, didn't promote you, but you weren't you fired. Weren't fired yeah. Nowadays, anybody will fire you. In Tokyo, for example, we used to bury our employees. Part of the deal with some of the employees would go all the way there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we waited till they were dead. We didn't bury them before. As a courtesy. As a courtesy, we let them die first. (laughs) But the difference is 
any company can fly. So the difference of understanding, a lot of companies are not very good at really understanding their own employees. Now with social, all, all this corporate social responsibility, mm. having kinds that the employees really want. Because there is no question that CSR is significant. More and more people will now buy from companies that they think are doing something that is worthwhile in addition to having a good product. But do you think, I mean, I work for a lot of chief executives and I think nowadays one of the things that social media has done is you, you can't segment and delineate audiences like you used to do. So, for example, back in the old days, a chief executive would have a staff newsletter so he could put a staff bias on what he or she was going to say. There'd be a customer newsletter, then he'd go on the television. Now, if you follow the chief executive on Twitter of any organisation, everyone's reading him or her. Every tweet could be read by a customer, a supplier, a member of staff. He can't kind of optimize the message, he or she has to kind of just say it to everyone. He does. It's more important that he understands. One of the problems is that when I started, the chief executive was God. No one questioned him. No one did anything. Even the the man who was in charge of PR internally was not an important job. No one left a big consultancy to go in-house. Nowadays, it's the opposite. Mm -hmm. In-house people are paid much more, and they really know. And the difference is not enough of the chief executives go into training for what their message is going to be, Mm. because it's the message that counts. I don't believe a thing called media training anymore. When I train chief executives, it's message training. Mm. And what is the message you want? Not enough chief executives really work on to make sure they know what the message is, know what the training, and know how to answer questions. For example, because I once wrote something on this, there's no such thing as a stupid question. There's only a stupid answer. That's what a very wise man said hundreds of years ago. So it doesn't matter what in the world you're asked. It's how you answer it, no matter who the audience is. And not enough people prepare themselves to make sure that their answers are the ones that they want to get to the audience. Do you think that's quite a burden on the modern chief exec then, given that there's two roles now? One is they've got to run the company, but two, they've got to be an ambassador in the media. Sure, it's a burden, but life is a burden now. (laughs) Everything is a burden in today's world. It's not like it was 100 years ago. I wanted to ask you about how the PR industry has changed. I mean, it's clearly changed because of technology and uh, it's booming for a variety of reasons. But in terms of the day-to-day, is it the kind of the same thing, really? Still trying well, to win no, journalists over? Of, one of the funny changes in the in the U.S. and in uh, in in England, where I lectured quite a bit, seventy percent of all students in PR are women. Seventy percent. So you're getting a change in that way. I think maybe that's why Cameron saw that. Seventy yeah. percent are women. Nowadays, the demands, as I said before, are much greater. Firms will have five or six different PR firms. When I started, if you hired Burson, you hired Helen Knowlton, you hired Webster, you, you had them for all your business. Now, you get someone like uh, Johnson & Johnson, they might have six different PR firms. So the needs, the doing your homework and really understanding the customer and the needs is great. Social networking, there's no question. You don't make a pitch unless you have somebody that really, really knows social networking and knows digital. So you have far more greater things that, that are needed. So it's a, it's a tougher business. It's a more demanding business. But you're able to accomplish it if you really are as professional. It's much more professional than it was in my day. Uh, it was good. But, I mean, today it's far, far more professional. Do you think social, as you've just said, has changed everything then? Because it's it's not just newspapers and magazines anymore now, is it? You've got to look after Twitter accounts, get Facebook likes and so on. And... Oh, sure. No, but... no question. It's been the biggest change in PR has been social media for, of anything, both for companies and, and for consultancies. No question. It's another world now. 
I think one of the things I've learned over the last few years is I used to do Twitter and tick a box and say, yeah, my client's on Twitter, but now I actively use it to engage with journalists and build relationships. It's not just tweeting for its own sake. You can actually build a relationship with a journalist no over question. Twitter. No, no question about it. And, and getting these building relationships, as I said, are the, uh, are the, are the key. And as I said, you've got to perceive what his feeling about either you personally or the company or whatever it is, is. And how can you change that perception if it's wrong? You know, he doesn't appreciate what a good job you've been doing or whatever, or how important your client is in that particular field. Don't you think it's a bit ironic that given that us PR professionals, as it were, manage reputation, manage images, that the, the reputation of our industry itself is so poor with the public? That's not change. It's funny. As I said, I've gotten awards from the IPR, and I started the PRCA. In you the did, first. yeah. But the one thing I say that PR will never be a profession. It'll be more professional. The main reason is, if you want to hire me, as long as I have a telephone, like in the old days of Max Clifford, if you had an affair with a member of parliament mm. and you went to Max, you were going to get a lot of money because it didn't matter what, what people thought of him or, any, or what the PR profession thought of Max Clifford at that period. You want to hire me, you can hire me. Doctors, lawyers, you can be disbarred, disband, you know, accountants and so on. But as long as I got a phone and you want to use me, you can. So PR will be more professional, and it has become one of the main things. It has become so much more professional than it was when I started. Mm. But it's not a, quote, profession per se. Do you think it should be? I mean, no. if, if PR, I mean, I, I've come across wrong-uns over the years, PR professionals that have stitched their clients up or taken the money. I mean, surely, surely we ought to have some kind of regulatory framework in, in the same way that a doctor or a dentist does. I said you can have that, but you still will never be a profession when anybody can be in the business. Mm. Everybody cannot be a doctor. And I can't tomorrow. I think I'll operate on you because I feel like being a doctor. Or I'll go to, the, to see the judge. I, I'm in the mood to be a lawyer today. That's not the way it is. But anybody can be a PR man. And that's why, yes, you can get tougher and so on, but there's no way that it will really be a profession, as profession is meant. But professional, it's by far, far more professional than it's ever been to the benefit of the clients who are hiring them. I suppose it's a bit like driving. I mean, I, I passed my driving test 20-odd years ago, and if I took it now, I'd completely fail it, I'm certain. And it's probably the same if there was some kind of entrance exam for PR. I would probably disagree with the question and, uh, and have to walk out. But I'm saying, even if they had an entrance exam, and you want to hire, they can't stop you from hiring me because, there's an, because the PRCA or the IPR is an entrance exam. Mm. No, if you want to use me, you can use me, period. And that's it. So do you think that times are only going to get better and better for PR then? No, it's doing very well now. Yeah, it'll, it'll, I think it'll keep improving. It's not because, uh, you know, that I'm in the business now. No, I'm optimistic about it. I think it will be continue to come more and more professional. That I believe. How do you think, because it's a symbiotic relationship, isn't it? The media depend on us for stories and we depend on them to cover it. Yeah. And to give them, but with the, with a dwindling media, do you think that that is going to have an effect? Because there, there are already fewer and fewer magazines, newspapers you know, and so on. public relations is not press relations anymore your customers and how you reach your customers and what and how you reach doctors or how you reach other people, that is where it's happening. So press relations has become much less significant than it was when I started, when 90% of the business was press relations. That's all you were looking for clippings. Now it's a whole different area. I mean, that's why you have corporate social responsibility, working with clients to do it, to have corporate social responsibility. Companies uh, go out 
and, and now go to Asia and to, to see their suppliers to make sure that they're treating their staffs well or they're not going to use them. And, the, and that, that, that's what's been happening more and more. So there's no question. In fact, uh, I think it was the economist one said, no annual report comes out today where corporate social responsibility or what they've done and what they have done is not included in it. So there are other things that are far different than, than getting publicity. That is the, the key today, public affairs. I mean, how you deal with government? What are you telling government? Who are you seeing in government? You know, a lot of government PR, there's no question. And, you know, banks and so on. So you know, it's not the clippings you're getting. It's who you're dealing with, what messages you're getting across to them. How are you training your clients to get those messages that are right across? So there's lots and lots of work for PR. They're working much harder, I'll tell you today. I'm stunned when I go in the person Marcelo office and it'll be 6.30 and you'll think uh, 90% of the staff is still there working. I mean, sometimes I talk to my clients and they, they don't want to get in the, the newspapers or in the media for doing something. And I always my advice to them is, well, don't do it then. You know, why do something and then try and manage the media implications of it? Do you, did you find that over the years you're actually almost not advising them on their PR, but actually advising them on their very core business. Well, that's the key. I mean, doing it, forgetting the press, you're doing it to increase your business. It's to get customers or get financing, you know, or get legal support. What do you want to accomplish? That's the key. And you help them accomplish it if you think it's right. I mean, if you think it's wrong, that's another story. But you help them accomplish it, and that is the key. What advice would you give someone uh, just starting out in their career? Would you tell them to avoid PR these days? Or if, if they wanted to do it, do you, what advice would you what give them? What do you mean them? avoid PR? You well, in, in terms of maybe getting another job in a different industry Oh, you completely. mean a person going in? No, I think PR is a great future. I wouldn't tell anybody to avoid it if that's what they want to do. And what, just like a person wants to be a doctor, I wouldn't say don't be a doctor. You go be a plumber if that's what he wants. But in terms of if you want to be a plumber or a doctor or a solicitor, there is actually a, quite an established route into that, that you've got to get certain qualifications at certain stages. And as you've already said, PR is quite open. What would you advise someone at the beginning of their career to do to get that first rung on the ladder in PR? Well, I'll tell you, the, the, the real key is trying to understand if you have specific skills that you think that, that you're particularly uh, good at. Like I say, in healthcare, for example, you know health very much. You have a background in medicine. You decide why you want to be in it. And the difference is the, the key is starting off becoming a trainee or an intern somewhere and, and learning, learning the business from the people above you and making sure that when you're there that you're, you are being taught the best possible way. Now, I know it, I'm very, I what I would lecture all the new employees. And I would say one thing very, very important. Every one of you is not good enough to be the chairman. You're not 10 out of 10. But you might be 7 out of 10. You owe it to be 7 out of 10. The company owes it to you that you can become 7. And if they not, you should leave. Leave person. Go somewhere else. Because if they will not allow you to be as good as you possibly can, go somewhere else. But you've got to try and be as good. And people should be reading more than they do, really, because there's so much happening in the world. Sometimes I don't have time to read the papers, and yet I'm working in the media, I'm not busy. I mean, there are so many different things, and really getting to understand your clients. And as I say about perceptions, what are the perceptions of their customers, of their staff, of the government, of the financial community? And how do you modify or change these perceptions or enhance them if they're good? All perceptions are not bad, Mm. and that's, that's really the key. What are you doing at the moment then, Bob? I mean, you're 82. You're still at the office, are you? I mean, what's your day-to-day, if you don't mind me asking? 
I don't mind you asking anything. That's why I'm here. <laughs> the the difference the difference is I still work for Burst. I'm an advisor. I'm on in some ways they're a client, so I I work with them on a variety of things. <clears throat> and now it's more lecturing, so I'm just starting to do more I'm writing more lectures and so on and look because I think I got about eight or nine scheduled in the fall coming up. So. But you're still active in the office doing like fee earning work if you don't mind me. Uh, that, yeah, I, every now and then I'll get an assignment like uh, I did for a client. I was training him on. Oh, and one company was picking a PR firm uh, that wasn't a kind of business for Burson. And they had me meet with the board, you know, and I questioned the uh, the company that was doing it and we reviewed it and everything. And so every now and then I'll, I'll have a, a minor assignment, but no one's going to want to hire me full time, you know, at 82. And I don't most, you'd want to work full time, would you? I want to retire uh, next year at forty. No, I wouldn't want to retire ever. That's not, uh, no, my wife wouldn't want me home all that time. I think she <laughs> thinks the best break ever. She gets rid of me. Yeah, uh, I said mornings. Uh, I'm I'm pretty much don't go in. It's mainly it's it's mainly uh, afternoons. afternoons, and uh, also advice. A lot of young people come to see me. I do a lot of that. People will ask me as a favor their nephew, or this one, or even mm. somebody. So I do see loads and loads, or else write help help them write their resumes. Because one of the things that I'm saying in perception, all the universities want me to lecture on getting a job. Mm. The key, and I lecture on the key to getting a job, the perception. And you can't believe the resumes that people write that are so bad. Oh, I don't doubt it. And the letters. I got letters addressed to Mr. Leak, Mr. Leap, Mr. Leach. They knew more about me than I thought they did. You <laughs> yeah, know? I was say, did they get the job after that? No. And one, and this is a true story at Burson Marcel, I got a letter, and it was a, with a good resume, and... Uh, also a good letter, and it was addressed to Robert Leaf, chairman of Bursting Marshmallow. Oh. Someone had played a joke on him and told him the name of the oh. company was Bursting Marshmallow. And he didn't do any due diligence. He didn't. So he didn't study it. So that alone, oh. that he wouldn't check it out, meant yeah. that I wasn't interested in it. But how they write their... Re- because nowadays, people graduating, they send the same resume to 20 companies. Mm. Now, Hill and Olden has a different problem than Burson, and Edelman has a different problem than Weber Shandwick. And if you're sending out, you want to see what are their needs and mm. how do you fit their needs. Mm. And it doesn't only be in PR. When you get a job and when you go for the interview, I'm always impressed if when I'm interviewing someone and they, and they knew something about me. Oh, you went to the University of Missouri. My cousin went there. The fact they knew what university I went to or so on. The minute I really feel that they've done their homework and have a knowledge base, their level as far as possibly being employed, and I've hired thousands of people, mm. goes up. So do you think that over the decades that you've worked in PR that people are taking more and more shortcuts, that they're not doing that research, whereas they used to do? Is that what no, it is, that they're no, trying to take shortcuts? No, no. They're, not, they're not taking shortcuts. It's just uh, some are doing more, but the needs are greater. I mean, so and when I was looking for a job, you know, I just sent a letter in, and they were looking for someone to open Burson's mail, and fine, and that was it. But nowadays... And the hiring much, much tougher mm. because there are a lot of people going into it. Because when I first started PR, if you told your professor and you went to a good university, you were going into PR, he'd say, Schweinhund, and he'd throw you out <laughs> in the street. Nowadays, you get letters from the leading universities. I have this wonderfully bright student. Do you have any interns open? So PR is acceptable all over to get the kind of jobs from anybody. But going for the job, sending, writing the, the right resume, judging it, not sending the same letter to every single company can be the key to you getting the job. I suppose the final question for me then, Bob, is tell us about your book. What was the motivation for writing it? What's in it? Et cetera. Oh, that's very good. No, the reason for writing because I really, and, I, and I'm not, I'm not going to write another book. I don't want another book. 
The difference is that I felt that this was the key to where the business was going. And it was fun because, you know, opening in China, opening in Russia, all these places and the anecdotes and what it was like and so on. It's a fun book. And this is not trying to, you know, to, to sell it. It's not a text in any way, though it's textual in telling you, for example, how's the best way to answer questions, how to get a job. And things. It's in there. But it's more that how you manage perceptions is the key to your success in the future. And I thought it was significant. And and it was good. We, they ran, we just re- reprinted it. You know, I'm just uh, very, very, very pleased with it. How is it selling? Well, I'll tell you, publishing today, the publishing industry is in terrible shape. There's no question about it. Very much and so, so and, 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 and one woman just had a book that she had, and they printed 750 copies. And that's all they printed. So they started mine. They printed 3,000. They all sold out. And so they just reprinted it now. Congratulations. Yeah. So uh, that's good. But now it used to be hardcover. Now it's a soft cover, but it's as hard as a hardcover is. Mm. And so... Uh, Who's buying it? Oh, well, well, certainly at the university when I go to students. Because the thing about it, I'm not interested in this to make money. So even though the original book was 15, and this is, uh, I mean 25 pounds, and this is 18, I give it to any student for 10. So we should say to our listeners, the book is called uh, The Art of Perception, Memoirs of a Life in PR. Yeah. And I think it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, because there's fun things like traveling through to bed on the top of the mountains, you know, and things like going into the Dalai Lama's bathroom. Climbing in swashbuckling adventure. Yeah. I mean, so there's fun things as I said about Russia, about the Middle East, and so on, and what had happened, and, uh, what what had to be done. Sorry, is it's not all cheerful. Like once in the Middle East, we were working for the uh, uh, the government of um, Mubarak at the, at that time, and we were doing for the tourist board. And one time, some uh, of the um, very anti wild end of the Egyptians went to one of the uh, leading temples, uh, came in and murdered all the people in the temple. And they were mainly tourists, French. They were Dutch. Wow. Publicly disemboweled a woman and put a message oh. to Mubarak in the... Oh. It was the best thing that ever happened because even religious groups mm. then became more pro-Mubarak. But we had a train. Everybody canceled every trip to, uh, to Egypt. And we had a train and what was crisis management. How do you manage this crisis? About like six months they were back to their normal tourism. So, I mean, there's stories mm-hmm. like that in that, that then, you know, you don't want to leap with glee over it, but there's, there's interesting stories I think that the readers would find fun. Do you think you'll ever retire? No. No, because I'll tell you truthfully, believe it or not, you live longer if you don't. Even cab drivers, doctors say to cab drivers, when you retire, work at least two days a week. If you do nothing, for some reason doing nothing, the mind affects the body. And if you keep active, you live longer. And I'm not going to live to be 250. You but, might do. Well, I'll, I'll settle for 150. You know, I'm not greedy. Bob, it's an honour to have you here in the studio. Thank you for joining us. Oh, that's no, because of you people. Here's what I will do. Anybody who wants to order the book can, instead of it's, uh, it's 18 pounds now, can have it for 10. I'm not in this, as I said, to make money. And because you people have been so nice to me here from the time I first talked to you. So any of anybody that comes <laughs> here can have it for 10 pounds. Thank you ever so much, Bob. I've really, really enjoyed this, and it's been very, very informative. It's a pleasure to be here. A Big Things Media Production. Big Things!